Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's episode is called After the Fall. It's by Stuff senior writer Nikki McDonald, who joins me now. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Michael. So straight into it, After the Fall, what's your story about? Essentially, it's the story of one man's road to recovery. So Chris Cannon had a history of psychosis, which was well managed with medication, but medication um, has side effects. So periodically, he would try to come off that medication. And that's what happened in 2004. And the psychosis returned. And he ended up in Wellington Hospital's mental health unit. And look, he thought that the devil was after him, that he was going to turn him into a, a kind of apprentice and that really to to save the world from that he he needed to kill himself and so he climbed out of the mental health unit and onto a nearby roof and he jumped six stories because he thought this was the only way out so really this is a story about what happened next it's a story about miraculous physical survival but much more than that it's a story about incredible mental resilience and how did you come across this now? Because as you say, this happened quite a few years ago. That tragic suicide attempt was covered in media at the time. How did you rediscover it or, or revisit it like this? It was. So obviously at the time it was it was a big deal and it was covered as a news event, uh, both the incident at the time and the subsequent investigation. And they um, cut down the, the tree that was used. And one of those stories had my name on it. I was the health reporter at the time. And Chris, it turned out, had kept that story. And when he read another story that I wrote about mental health earlier this year, he contacted me and said, hey, look, would you be interested in telling my story? I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah, it's an amazing story. So Chris, as we'll hear, he's he's very open in the story about what's happened to him and about his mental health struggles over the years. You've written a few stories on this sort of thing before with mental health. Is there a line for you with how you treat someone who's as open as he is? Do you check what you do, edit what you do? Do you decide there are things you shouldn't include? How do you approach it? Yeah, well, obviously mental health is an incredibly sensitive subject, so we're always very careful about how we report that. But there is also good evidence that um, it can be useful for people who are experiencing similar struggles to hear about people overcoming their own mental health. Battles. So, you know, I think that both Chris and I wanted the story to be um, hopeful, but at the same time, you know, you're very aware of not glossing over what have been very real battles for him. So it was really just trying to to find a balance between those two things. And obviously, you know, it is an incredibly brave thing um, for someone like Chris to put their story out there um, in so much personal detail. So I guess my biggest concern is always just trying to treat that story with the care and, and respect that it deserves. Well, I think you've done that and then some. So let's hear it. Thanks, Nikki. Here is me. And again, a warning, the story contains references to suicide and mental health issues. Reading after the fall. Chris Canham inched to the roof's edge and looked over. Six stories dropped away to tarmac. This'll do it, he thought. 
He'd been admitted to Wellington Hospital's mental health unit the previous day, a Friday. Kind nurses from the mental health service at Potidua's Pemba House had driven him there in their own car. He'd recently stopped taking his medication again. He had been stable for 10 years and was feeling pretty good. Maybe he'd grown out of it, he thought. He was sure he'd recognise the signs if they returned. But the psychosis didn't knock before entering. When they admitted him, he saw the chair in his room and knew immediately what it was for. That was where the devil would sit. Canham wasn't depressed. He didn't hate his life. That wasn't why he shimmied up the tree in the mental health unit yard and climbed up to the nearby building's roof. He believed the devil was going to turn him into his apprentice, some kind of antichrist. He's waiting for me, Canham thought. I've finally blown it now, big time. There seemed only one way out, to kill himself. A mental health nurse saw him escape and begged him to come down from the roof. But the nurse's pleas were no match for the conviction that this was what was needed to save humankind. So he jumped. Nothing in Canham's early childhood pointed to mental health problems. Born in 1965, his earliest memory was watching the 1969 moon landing on the family's old black and white TV. The middle child of three, growing up in a loving family in Hamilton, Canham was a happy kid living in an innocent time. They'd go camping at Mount Maunganui and watch the dolphins at Marineland. His dad, Nigel, was a draftsman for lands and survey and loved the outdoors. They would tramp in the local hills and, for a week in August, they'd stay in a tramping club hut at Mount Ruapehu and go skiing. Canham was into athletics and football and got his yellow belt in judo. He liked animals and read a lot, writers like Born Free author Joy Adamson. He reckoned he might go to Africa and work with big game. But at 13, the family moved south to Wellington. Canham never really settled at Altair College. In sixth form, his school marks tailed off, and he became depressed. Girlfriend issues, parent issues, usual teenage stuff he couldn't talk to his parents about. The school counsellor wasn't much help either. Canham felt fobbed off. Pull your socks up, play rugby, you'll be right, seemed to be the message. His schoolwork declined so badly he failed university entrance, so he left school to be an apprentice mechanic. His boss was great, the money paid for beers. He grew up, left home, joined Hutt Valley Tramping Club, and for a while, the dark thoughts slunk away. A hash cookie proved Canham's passport to paranoia. At Christmas 1986, he jarred his back on a tramping trip and the depression slid back in. He was in a party flat, a revolving door of drinking and cannabis smoking. He'd been smoking dope at weekends for three years with no obvious side effects. But one night, a flatmate cooked up a hash cookie, which seemed to flick a switch. Canham wasn't religious then, but from somewhere, his mind conjured the devil into the room. It was a real bad trip, lasting all day and all night. He thought the devil was going to get him. The 
trip wore off. The psychosis didn't. The next day, he swore off drugs for life. But the damage was done. Three months later, in August, slow paranoia turned to full-blown psychosis. He just unravelled. After a weekend of fearing the devil, wired with no sleep, he wanted to kill himself. Instead, he turned up to his mechanic's apprentice job at the Hutt Valley Energy Board. They realised he needed urgent help and raced him to Hutt Hospital, from where he was whizzed to Porirua Psych Unit by ambulance. Canham was with it enough to be terrified. Terrified he'd end up in a padded cell, screaming, going insane. That that would be his life, and he couldn't do anything about it. One minute he'd almost finished his mechanic's apprenticeship and was ready to take off to London to see his sister. The next, he was in hospital. He was 22. Just one hash cookie, Canham says now. That started everything. When Canham's body hit the tarmac with the gravitational force of six stories, it broke. His pelvis shattered, compound fractures of both legs, a broken right wrist. He needed aggressive resuscitation and urgent treatment to stem the bleeding from his pelvic fractures. His mother, Jill, was supposed to be visiting him for lunch. Doctors told her he would live, but might be brain damaged. One thing probably saved Canham's life, that he jumped on the grounds of a hospital. Somewhere between roof and impact, Canham had blacked out. Doctors put him in a coma to help his body recover from the shock. When he woke up three weeks later, he couldn't move. His fractured legs and right wrist were set in plaster, his smashed pelvis pinned together. He was on morphine and the old-school antipsychotic drug haloperidol. The first thing I wanted was a coffee, Canham laughs. I felt good mentally. I was totally non-psychotic. I was grateful I was alive. That was 2004. It was the last of Canham's several stays in hospital psych units. From that first episode in 1987, he had yo-yoed between stable and psychotic. Antidepressants and antipsychotic drugs kept the devil away, but they also robbed him of energy and motivation and limited his ability to work. So every now and then, Canham would decide, in his wisdom as he puts it, that he didn't need them anymore. And every time, he would land back in hospital. But that was the last time. I nearly died, he says, and I realised I caused so much pain to myself and my mum and to those around me that I thought I would never come off meds again, no matter how I felt. For me personally, I need medication, I realised. Even though I don't really want to take it because it slows me down so much, I need it. It's the lesser evil of ending up killing myself or being again in a psychiatric hospital. Canham announces his arrival in metallic Morse code. Tac tac pause. Tac tac pause go his two crutches in quick succession. The fiberglass socket attaching his prosthetic leg to his left knee beams orange. Canham wanted something that would stand out, and orange is his favourite colour. 
the left lower leg was too messed up to save. Doctors suggested amputating the right one too, but he wanted to keep one leg. The trade-off is an inflexible ankle that causes him pain. He can still walk, but only for short distances. It's one of the small pleasures that has kept him going these past 18 years. Out the back of the Wellington suburb of Karori, up a winding road, is Wright's Hill, one of Canham's favourite destinations. Dressed in shorts and a Swazi fleece vest, a tuft of greying hair curling up from under his beanie and a wiry bristle of beard and moustache, Canham looks a little bit wild man. But then he starts talking history, tales of the coastal gold mines and old World War II gun emplacements. He settles onto a bench overlooking Wellington Harbour. To the left, the wind turbines of marketers' west wind chop at the dark, distant silhouette of the South Island. Family friends owned a batch south of Marketer at Tikamaru Bay, where the Canams would sometimes spend holidays. That brings back good memories. And as a teenager, Canham would roam those ridgelines. Now, his furthest reach is the right-hand turbine on Quartz Hill. A short walk from the car park puts you beneath the impressive tower. Mount Coco also used to be a walking favourite, and the skyline walkway from there to Marketer. I used to do that a lot, Canham says, when I had legs. And in the far folds of the horizon, the Tadadua Range. It's a good view for me, he says, seeing all the old tramping places. The Tadadua Ridgeline reminds me of Dad. He doesn't sound bitter or even wistful. He's come to a place of acceptance. But the journey hasn't been easy. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Pinned and plaster-bound on that hospital bed, Chris Canham didn't really understand the extent of his injuries. He was visited, fussed over, and served tubs of ice cream. When he tired of hospital food, he ordered Pizza Hut from down the road. It wasn't until he returned to his flat at Christmas 2004, after four months in hospital and another three at his mother's place, that the reality of what he'd lost sunk in. My colostomy bag was causing me issues, he says. About three times a week, it would just come off, and I'd be covered in crap. That was the worst. 
and I suddenly realised what kept me going in the past, going hiking and tramping, doing something physical that kept my spirits up. I couldn't really do that anymore. And yeah, I just got really in a black dog depression. It was so bad, I really thought I would kill myself. Not because I was psychotic, but because I wasn't going to live like this. I'd rather be dead. Canham isn't angry at the mental health unit for failing to keep him safe, even though staff had raised concerns about the tree in the yard, which has since been cut down. While the mental health service messed up on that occasion, they saved his life on many others. That included pulling him out of that black dog depression. For a couple of years, Canham talked every week with Pember House psychologist Natalie Coynash. They helped me through it, he says. If I hadn't had support from Pember House, I would have killed myself. An ACC accident payout was also a lifesaver. Canham bought a little sports car and drove around the North and South Islands, visiting friends. Just feeling he could get out and do things helped jolt him out of the depression. Canham has been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, a combination of long-term depression and psychosis. He was discharged from specialist mental health care to his GP in about 2010 because he was considered stable. He jokes that depression is now so widespread, authorities should put antidepressants in the water supply. But psychosis still carries a social stigma. It's easier to say you've got depression rather than say you're psychotic, Canham says. Everyone's got depression, but psychosis is kind of like, oh, he's crazy. When he met a woman he was keen on a few years back, he gave a creative explanation for his injuries. I was too scared to tell her the truth, he says, so I said I had a climbing accident. I didn't want to freak her out. Auckland University Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry Graham Melsop has researched the links between cannabis use and psychosis in New Zealand. While there were reports during the Vietnam War of acute delirium-type psychosis in US servicemen taking big doses of strong cannabis, he's sceptical that a single hash cookie could trigger ongoing psychosis. Some people with mental health problems use cannabis to self-medicate. But according to Melsop, heavy regular cannabis use can also raise the risk of developing psychotic symptoms, especially in young people. If they hadn't used the cannabis, Melsop says, they would never have developed the psychosis. A lot of them are long-term. That's why it's such a worry. Canham doesn't mind the schizoaffective label. At least having the right diagnosis means you get the right treatment. After one early psychotic episode, Canham spent a year at his parents' house, staying in bed till the afternoon caught between facing a lifetime of torment and the prospect of killing himself and going straight to hell. I had no hope, he says. This was life. I'd lost everything. It wasn't until his parents got a second medical opinion and a medication regime change that he finally came out of it. Canham still takes antipsychotic haloperidol and the antidepressant citalopram. Drugs, though, 
are not a miracle solution. The medication, of course, helps, he says, but it comes halfway. You have to do your part in living a positive life by looking after what you eat, exercise, moderation in drinking, no drugs. I haven't touched marijuana since my first time with psychosis back in 87. Alcohol for me is in moderation. I don't get drunk anymore. It just helps with the pain and just to relax a little bit. You can't just take medication and expect it's going to be the cure. You have to work with that and work on your own mental health. Canham recently took some young people on a surfing trip to Taranaki. He can't catch any waves, but he's catching on to the lingo. I'm learning about words like sick, he laughs. That's a pretty cool word now. He also helps kids with his beloved old sport of rock climbing. He started going to church in 1990, and his faith motivates him to do community work. Dave Bond reckons helping others has helped Canham heal himself. The pair met in about 2007, when Canham started volunteering for the drug ARM charity that patrolled the late-night streets of Wellington, handing out help and hot drinks. I've always been impressed with how Chris is able to think about others more than himself, Bond says. And I think he found that as a strategy for getting out of his mental struggles. He makes a point of spending time with people, looking them up to see how they're doing. He's quite an inspiration, really. A bit rough at the edges, but with a heart of gold, Canham has a knack for identifying familiar struggles, Bond says. My picture of Chris when we're out in the city at nights is of him sitting on a bench, usually with some teenager or teenagers pouring his heart out. These guys are drawn to Chris. They want to talk to him because they feel he's got something he can help them with because he's been there, done that. Drug ARM Wellington is now defunct, but Canham and Bond still catch up regularly. He's a good example of how people can get over drug problems, Bond says, combined with or perhaps causing mental health problems and come out the other side. And even though Chris hasn't got what you'd call a high-flying lifestyle, he somehow manages to hold it all together and focus on what's important to him and not get too distracted by the things that he hasn't got, as perhaps other people might. He's found a place in life that he's comfortable with, and his Christian beliefs would have a lot to do with that. While Canham likes to help others, it's clear a succession of others helping him, from medics to mates, has been critical to keeping him afloat. The reason he tried repeatedly, before the hospital jumping incident, to come off medication was because the side effects make it hard to work. Fatigue fogs his brain till about 1pm, ruling out a 9-to-5 job. But in 2010, a back-to-work support agency asked the manager of Niwa's Mahanga Bay Aquaculture Research Facility, Phil Heath, if he would take Canham on. Canham had engineering and maintenance skills, and the site always had stuff needing fixing, so it seemed a good fit, Heath recalls. 
Canham was upfront about the medication's side effects, so they used a gentle approach. It was around trying to put enough pressure on him to keep him motivated, Heath says, without holding him desperately to account if things weren't done by this time on Friday. It was a partnership that I thought worked really well. There were frustrations, for sure. Sometimes Canham wouldn't turn up on a Monday morning, although he always let Heath know. Heath's advice to others considering taking on someone like Canham is absolutely do it. But do it with your eyes wide open, he says. He did lots of good work for us, but if you're one of those employers who thinks everybody should have this done by five o'clock on Friday, then it ain't going to work. Canham says the job was the best thing that happened. Even though I was a bit depressed and slow, he says, Heath put up with it. So I came to town, got a flat by myself, and it was good. But Mahanga Bay closed in 2013, so Canham was again set adrift. For a time, he went to university to study chemistry and maths, but he lacked the discipline and funds to keep going. In 2015, he advertised himself as a mobile mechanic, but he still needed something more. Just off the Porirua Highway exit, a clutch of shipping containers marks out Terito Gardens. Through the gate, a guy is painting white tips on stakes. Someone else is building tables for the native seedlings they grow and sell. Corfi, caprosmas, kakabeek, all locally sourced. Steve Wilson set up Terito in 2009 as a place to be for his son, Reuben, who had a disability, without labels, without judgment, where he could do useful therapeutic work. Now Wilson hosts everyone from the long-term disabled and those with mental health problems to high flyers who have had life-limiting accidents. Canham was referred by the same person who hooked him up with the Niwa job, He was never much interested in plants, but comes in about once a week to keep the machinery running, trucks, mulches. Canham says Terito has been a lifeline. Being able to get out, go to work, that was a big part of my rehabilitation, he says. Not just watching TV and drinking coffee. It got me out of the house. It was really good. A lifesaver. I think that's one of the main things when you're mentally unwell. You're in hospital or at home, doing nothing. A normal person, it would make you go crazy. You've got to have something to do. If Steve wasn't there, I don't know what I would have done. To me, he saved my life. Wilson laughs that off. Chris is a bit of a dramatist, he says. He's helped me a lot as well. He's a really good friend. We can talk on a level that most people can't in terms of our spiritual beliefs. It hasn't all been rosy, mind. They've had their bust-ups. But, like Bond, Wilson admires Canham's resilience. He's been an inspiration to me, he says. For somebody that's gone through what he has gone through, to get up in the morning and continue. Now 57, Canham says age has helped him accept the confines of his world. He holds on to the good things. A bit of hiking, watching movies, reading the Bible, talking politics and religion. A power pie 
all the way from the Chatham Islands. And an enduring friendship. Canham met Tim Percival at Hutt Valley Tramping Club when Canham had just left school and Percival was still studying. They took a few tramping trips together before Canham branched out into rock climbing. After Percival moved to Christchurch in 1990, Canham visited and looked him up. Together, they would hit the hills. A shy guy, Percival likes how Canham strikes up conversations with strangers. He's still friends with one couple he met in hospital all those 18 years ago. He's more outgoing than me, Percival says. More sociable than me, has a warmer personality than me, braver than me. Even after Canham was injured, they would find walks he could manage. Since about 2007, Canham has visited Percival in Nelson once or twice a year. They'd do overnight trips into Kahurangi National Park or rock climbing with Percival's young kids. In 2013, the pair spent two nights at Zach's Hut in the Orongorongo Valley, north of Wellington. A two-hour tramp took about seven hours, but they ploughed on. And for four years, Canham played volunteer driver for the St Arnold paragliding meet, chasing the drifting sails cross-country to their landing spots. He's always sincere and thoughtful and generous, Percival says, helping young kids, helping at the soup kitchen at his church. He seems to have helped himself a hell of a lot. For Canham, the pair's trips were treasured breaks to the daily routine. They were the best of times. While the bright spots keep him going, Canham has one great regret. I feel both lucky and unlucky, he says. Lucky that I had good parents, a good mental health support system, but unlucky that I suffered from a mental illness that has stopped me probably having a wife or having a family, which is the hardest thing I've had to deal with. Looking back, Canham wonders if things could have been different, if he'd got better mental health support at school, if he and his dad had got counselling. Maybe then he wouldn't have turned to cannabis and developed psychosis. One of the main things causing me to smoke so much drugs was the distance between me and my dad, he says. It caused a lot of anger. I think if I was to recommend something in today's world, it would be just communication. Just talk to your kids, you know? When kids don't feel they can talk to their parents about stuff, sex, drugs, anything, they get isolated. I think that's the main thing. Despite everything, Canham feels lucky he didn't die that day he threw himself off a hospital building to flee the devil. He's happy doctors were able to scoop his broken body from the tarmac and rebuild it so he could start rebuilding the battered spirit inside. You've just got to accept what life's giving you, he says. I realised I had to make the most of my life and get a perspective that there's other people worse off than me. In terms of a positive life, looking after yourself, caring for other people, having a faith has been important in my life. And just being able to think that there is a life after death, that can be a bit better. But meanwhile, here on Earth, we have to do the best we can. 
not complain too much. Work in the community, try and help out. We're all part of a big family, really. That was After the Fall on The Long Read from Stuff, written by Nikki MacDonald and read and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you're listening via the Stuff website, you can hear this story and many more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual podcast apps. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.